Last part of a psalm, Psalm 66. And we're going to begin in verse 16. And if you're, again, if you're visiting, if you're here for the first time, I met a visitor uh, this morning out front, uh, uh, out in the lobby for the first time this morning. Uh, great to have you here. And I'm actually starting a new series this, this morning. With, for fall and winter, we looked at the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and we wrapped that up and uh, had a big Easter last week. But we're starting something new this morning. I'll say something about that in just a second. Um, one of you told me a while back that, uh, that you run regularly and that people see you running in town regularly and they assume that you love running. And, uh, and this church member told me, I, I hate running. Hate it. I love eating. <laughs> and I thought, yes. It's compelling logic. Uh, a lot of people, some, in fact, some folks who were here uh, this morning, braved Atlanta yesterday or are braving Atlanta. And I, I was driving through there Friday, and the news was talking about 100,000 extra people would be there each day, and the police are all on 12-hour shifts. And, it, you know, normal Atlanta is horrible as far as traffic goes, but just add 100,000 people. You know, if you talked to somebody yesterday that was going down for the Final Four, and you asked them, do you love Atlanta traffic? No. I love college basketball. Now, just two, you know, random examples of a principle that everybody knows. This is in everybody's life. We do what we do because we love what we love. Right? We do what we do because we love what we love. And, and you could even put it this way, and this might be a little bit more helpful... I love will always trump I ought. Always. You can throw oughts at us all day long. All of us know things we ought to be doing or changes that we ought to make, but I love will always trump I ought. Now, here's where I'm going with this. What I'd like to do the next few weeks, really till the end of May, is just a short series, and I'm calling this The Habits of Love. The habits of love. And what I want to look at are just basic meat and potato activities, disciplines, we could say. That's a good word. In the Christian life, um, we're going to look at prayer this morning, study of the Word of God, interaction with the Word of God, uh, things like generosity, service, fellowship, just basic Christian activities. But the way I want to frame this and look at it is that I don't... Th- these, there is such a thing as doing these as good habits. Just like disciplines, that's not a bad word. Habit is not a bad word. The problem is, if it's a habit of ought, duty is not a bad word. But to simply do these things because I ought, something's missing. And the hope is that we could look at these activities, and I want to I throw out some very practical things, even this morning. Uh, There's a million things I want to say about prayer. I can only say very, very, very few. But I want to look at some things about, just practically speaking, what might help us in the doing of prayer. But I want to keep it harnessed to love. Not just doing it because I ought, but because I love. Now, we're looking at the end of Psalm 66. How could this psalm be helpful for us 
growing in what it means to be people who pray. I mean, I think if I polled this room and said, how many of you are satisfied with your prayer life? Are you satisfied with it? I think the answer no would be 100.0%. None of us are. How could this be helpful to keep prayer, even the habit of praying, harnessed to love and not just awe? Psalm 66, beginning in verse 16. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what He has done for my soul. I cried to Him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray, even as we've heard this about prayer, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there are these things that get sent back and forth all over online, YouTube videos and and whatnot, and, uh, you know, they get sent to you, and then they get resent to you, and you send them to others. One that got sent to me a while back was was a comedian when he was on uh, the Conan O'Brien show, and it was, is it Louis C.K. or Louis C.K.? Louis? Louis. Thank you. Accountability. That's what we like about Presbyterianism. That's good. All right, Louis C.K. And uh, now, I think normally I would not be quoting him from the pulpit, but uh, this, it was on Conan O'Brien, so it was a little bit tempered. But he, and, and you could tell this was something he, he showed up wanting to do, kind of a shtick, and I uh, think Conan sort of threw him a softball, and so he went into it. But he was talking about, he, he said, everything's amazing and nobody's happy. Just talking about these amazing changes, especially through technology, and just these amazing things you could do that even in my childhood you couldn't do, but we're just as gripey as we've ever been. And he talks about just the whole deal, smartphones and everything. But then he started talking about flying. And he said, people on flights, they they talk like they've been on cattle cars in Germany in the 1940s. And he impersonates someone saying... I stood at the gate for 20 minutes and then we got on the flight and we were on the runway for 40 minutes. And he says, oh, yeah, and then what did you do next? Did you fly through the air? <laughs> did you partake in the miracle of human flight? Is it everyone on an aircraft should just be sitting there going, ah, wow. And this was the one that got me. He finally said, you're sitting in a chair in the sky. <laughs> kind of drives it home. Now, with, with, that, with that sort of template in place, I want, you to, I want you to think about this. We just, you know, we've been through Revelation. Multiple times in the book of Revelation, the apostle John 
is, is talking to an angel, and an angel will say, I want to show you something, or he'll interpret something, or he'll say, you know, this means that. Picture one of these angels talking to one of us. Not to John, but to one of us. And picture that one of us is talking about our frustration with prayer. And maybe we're saying something along the lines of, you know, I have a very hard thing going on in my life right now. And I have been praying about this for two weeks. And I have prayed every day for two weeks. And, and nothing's happening. Now, what if we said that? And what if an angel looked at us and said, so when you did that for two weeks, then what happened? Did your words go into the throne room of heaven? Did your words in Greenville, South Carolina, pass into the very presence of the living God on whom we cannot look directly? Did your words do that even if you didn't aspirate them out of your mouth? Did words that you simply thought in your heart, did they go to God? That would be uncomfortable because as good angels tend to be, he would be right, right? I'm going to make really a very brief point from this text. My exposition is going to be somewhat brief and I'm going to spend a little bit more time on application because that would be getting at something that can help us not only in, in the doing of prayer but even in wanting to pray. Now, me explaining it, me saying it, me hopefully dividing God's Word right, that, that can't make you want to do it. It can't make me want to do it. God has to do that. But from this text, I want to set something out before us all to say, how could this help us develop the habit of prayer, not just out of ought, but out of love? In this psalm, and really this is kind of a, really in a one-point sermon, the psalmist is saying, come here, literally, come here. I want you to see something, or actually I want you to hear something. He says in verse 16, come and hear All you who fear God... Now, that means he's speaking to people who are disposed to believe in God and prayer and to believe that this is is something real. So he's saying, look, you, I want you to hear what happened to me. And I'll tell you what he's done for my soul. Okay, so what's the thing that the psalmist wants us to hear that happened? He says, all right, here's what happened. I prayed to God. Now, what was the prayer? Because, you know, the way psalms can often work is that the psalmist is really in a bind, and so he's asking God to do something about being in this bind. It might be enemies. It could be anything. It could be, you know, danger. Do something. So is the psalmist saying, I was in this bind, and I asked God to do such and such, and he answered it. And that's not what it is. Because look at what he says about his prayer, verse 17. I cried to him with my mouth. Now, that could mean request, but what's the thing he wants us to know that he did? He said, high praise was on my tongue. So he's saying, I I want you to hear what happened to me. I prayed to God, and the prayer that I was praying, I was praising God for who he is. So is that the big thing he wants us to see? Well, that's just kind of starting. 
why is it so interesting that he's praising God instead of just asking Him for things? Because earlier in the psalm, the psalmist says, we were in a tough place. Now, I didn't include this in the text that I read, but this part in italics underneath is from the same psalm earlier. So what does he say? Here's where he is in life. He says, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. And just Let's just stop right there. When he was going through something, he said it's like just being crushed. It's like someone riding over you. And you may have felt that. You may have been through something where you say, this is not so much like a bad day. It's like my heart is being crushed. It's like the life is being smashed out of me. It's like I'm being ground into powder. He's saying, that's our experience right now. So I turned to God and I praised Him. So is that the thing the psalmist wants us to see? And no. Now that's good. It's amazing that he praises the God who's causing those things. He says, you did this, you did this. But is that the thing he wants us to see? What's the thing he wants us to see? Look in verse 18. He says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And there's other scriptures that say things like that, that if, if, I, if I dig my heels in, And before God and before man, I just have my sins and I love them and I don't care what God says about it, that that affects my praying. In fact, in the New Testament, the the Apostle Peter, he says that if you have a, a married man and he mistreats his wife, that will undermine the effectiveness of his prayers. His poor treatment of his wife, same principle. And all the husbands went, ooh, oh, okay. Note to self. So is what the psalmist wants us to see, wow, so I must have been on top of my my sins enough that God heard me. Is that what he wants us to see? No. What's the thing that amazes the psalmist? Verse 19. Truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Part of what we do, as we say from time to time, when we come together, is we're brought back to biblical sanity. And sometimes what that looks like is we just sort of go back to square one and say... Who are we and who is God? And we sing that and we read that and we confess that. Who is God? Here's how the catechism answers that question. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, 
and truth. God is the God that according to Psalm 114, when He brought His people supernaturally out of Egypt, out of slavery, and took them into the wilderness, that anywhere He manifested Himself, the creation physically began to respond to Him. That Mount Sinai, just an eastern mountain, began to rumble and to become fiery and to smoke and to tremble at His presence that when God manifested Himself at the Red Sea, Psalm 114 says, it doesn't say it's so much split, is that it fled from Him. It ran from its Creator. When Isaiah the prophet was shown a vision of God, the posts of the temple began to shake like an earthquake. And the angels whom Isaiah had seen, who were singing to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. These are sinless angels. They do this all the time, but they cover their faces so that they don't look directly on the living God. They cover their feet so they don't touch down on the ground that He has made sacred by His presence. And when Isaiah saw that, he said, Woe is me. And this is a prophet. It's not a Philistine. Woe is me. I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and I've seen the Lord God Almighty. He is the judge of all the earth. We grow accustomed to the fact that we can just talk at Him and that He'll listen. But it's a miracle. How do you know that He's listening if it looks like He's not responding to the thing that we're saying or the thing that we're asking? Now, if if you're here for the first time or second time, and this, what I'm about to say, if this at all piques your curiosity, I want you to keep coming back because I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, but this is a point we come back to every single sermon and every single Bible study. It's at the very heart of everything that we do as a church. Look again at the end of the psalm. Blessed be God because He has not rejected my prayer or removed His steadfast love from me. How can I know that's true if I'm depressed? How can I know that that's true if I am one of those people that you prayed for who's been unemployed so long that it's just crushing me? How do I know that He won't remove His steadfast love from me, that He has heard my prayer? You know how you can know it? It's because of the fact that this God who doesn't need our input It's not as if when we pray something that he gets this info and goes, oh, I had not thought about it from that angle. Or that's a little piece of data that's very helpful to me. I didn't know that until you told me just now. By the way, that's one of the reasons. Go ahead and say it to him because he knows it anyway. It's not like silence is going to keep it on the DL with God. But he doesn't need our input. It doesn't help him. 
But it's so important to him that sinners like us have this, that his own son, who is just as much God as God the Father, became a man. He was the, per- he was the one perfect man. He was the one perfectly devout Jew. You know what that means? That means that these psalms were his hymn book. That not only in his deity that he breathed out these psalms, but in his humanity he grew up learning them and memorizing them and singing them and saying them in community, saying them in the synagogue as a perfect man. And think about this. For his life he had sung Psalm 66. I know that when I pray to God, He's going to hear my prayer and He will not remove His steadfast love from me. But there came a point where He asked God to do something. And He asked Him three times on the same night. If there's any way that we can do this, and by do this means save my people so they can be in heaven with me and with you, Father. If there's any way that we can do this without me drinking the cup of your wrath, could we do that? And he prayed it three times. And the unrecorded answer is no. And the next day, as he's on the cross, saying the Psalms, saying Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's in his heart. God removes his steadfast love from him at least in any felt capacity. Why does he do that? So that he will never have to do that with any of his people. He acts as if he is unwilling to hear what his son has to say. Why? So that we can always know that he is willing to hear anything that we have to say. The way to learn how to love prayer is to see what the gospel is, that this God doesn't need me. But He bids me to come and to talk to Him, and He listens. Well, how, how do we flesh that out? Now, there are 8,000 things I want to say about prayer, the doing of it, and I've got time for about four, maybe. So I want to throw out four things. And I'd love for community groups to tease this out this week. So if if you're not in a community group, I'd love for you to visit a community group. If you're in a community group, take good notes and throw in your two cents. Now, first thing is this. We aren't just praying souls. We're not just praying souls. And we forget this sometimes. We are souls and bodies. To be made in the image of God is to be both a soul and a body. What does that mean? That means that sometimes, for we who struggle so much in prayer, our prayer may need to be more physical. Now, I'm not throwing any of these applications out as like, this is the silver bullet to overhaul, you know, three steps to a better prayer life. That's not what I'm doing. But I want you to think about this. I've preached on this text several times and I I just had never thought about this. In the Gospel of Mark, when it records Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's going to pray, take this cup from me, it says in Mark chapter 14 that he tells his disciples to stay awake and watch and pray. And he goes off a little ways. And you know what it says? It says he fell to the ground. 
perfect man. Always did the right thing. Always asked the right thing. Did that, did that do something magical to help his prayer? No. What was he doing? He was praying with all of himself as a man. That the actions of the body corresponded to the cry of the soul. The posture of the body corresponded to the expression of the soul. What does, that, what does that mean? That means this. Maybe if I'm trying to pray, maybe I'm trying to pray in the morning before everything gets so busy and, and I struggle with it, that when, I, when I'm confessing sins that it doesn't feel real. And again, you don't have to do it this way, but I'm asking you to think that there's a difference between praying about your sins to God like this. Versus this. Do you have to do it that way? No. But we're not just souls. We're bodies with knees and arms and legs, necks that can bow, tear ducts. That's the first thing. The second thing is prayer makes great infrastructure. Prayer makes great infrastructure. What do I mean by that? We are Americans. We are known around the world as just worker bees. Get it done. Stress-related illnesses, the whole nine yards, you know. Yes, I worked myself into an early grave, and I liked it. I mean, that's kind of what we're about. Something's going to structure your day. Very few people have a completely unstructured day once they, they grow up. So what structures it? And typically for us, it's the stuff we've got to do, which means what? Work and errands and commitments. What if our day was structured by prayer? I want to read something to you. This is by a Baptist missionary named Adoniram Judson. If you've ever, if you've ever seen Baptist churches named Judson Baptist Church, this is who... Those are named after. When I lived in Nashville, our son Henry went to preschool at Judson Baptist Church. Adoniram Judson was a renowned Baptist missionary. Now, I want to read something he wrote. And you tell me, well, you think to yourself, what does it sound like he's describing? This is his advice about prayer for Christians. It, man, good grief. I used to not have to take the glasses off, but things change. Endeavor seven times a day to withdraw from business and company and lift up thy soul to God in private retirement. Begin the day by rising after midnight and devoting some time amid the silence and darkness of the night to this sacred work. Let the hour of opening dawn find thee at the same work. Let the hours of nine, twelve, three, six, and nine at night witness the same. Be resolute in his cause. Make all practical sacrifices to maintain it. Now... Baptist missionary, what did that sound like he was describing? Monks. That sounds like a description of monasticism. And then I came across this. This is by John Calvin. This is my little show and tell up here. John Calvin, who, if there's anyone who was not a monk, it was John Calvin. And he says this. We should ever aspire to God and pray without ceasing, but still, 
since our weakness is such that it has to be supported by many aids, and our sluggishness such that it needs to be goaded, it's fitting that each one of us should set apart certain hours for this exercise. Those hours should not pass without prayer, and during them all the devotion of the heart should be completely engaged in it. These hours are when we rise in the morning, before we begin daily work, when we sit down to a meal, when by God's blessing we have eaten, when we are getting ready to retire. Now, is the point of this, you must do it that way, let's close in prayer. No. The point is this, men and women of the past said this, the day of the believer is best structured with prayer. Rather than saying, well, I'm going to structure it with my work and my commitments, and then we'll see if we can just kind of sort of get a slice of prayer up in some of the leftover space, if there is any. Another way to put it would be this. What if monks don't own a day structured by prayer? What, what if monks don't have a monopoly on that? What if they were drawing from a well of just historic Christian practice from which we may draw as well without some of the unnecessary baggage. When would that be for you? You have to decide that. But what would it look like to bring the same commitment to soul care that many of us bring to body care and to say, at this point, that's what I do. Um, A a, a friend of several people in this church stopped by to to see me a, a few weeks ago And she just told me, she said, you know what, I'm in one of the best places I've been spiritually in a long time. She wasn't saying I've got it all together, but she just said, I feel myself growing, I feel myself stabilizing. And a huge part of that has been that at 12 o'clock, I meet with God. Whether I feel close to God or whether I feel distant from God, I sit down and we talk and I read the Bible. And it's been like miracle growth. That's just locked in. Okay? Prayer makes great infrastructure. The third thing is this. Learn how to prime the pump. Have you ever had the experience that you say, okay, all right, fine. I will pray at 6 in the mornings. And so we set our alarm and we get up, maybe in time to get coffee in us, pre-prayer coffee, and, and say, all right, here we go. All right, prayer time. Yeah. And I don't know how to, I don't know what to say. I feel groggy. I feel preoccupied. I don't know where to begin. I'm overwhelmed with all there is to pray about. This little book I'm holding, this is a book of prayers by Martin Luther. And uh, someone gave this to us as a wedding present. And there's a section in this book where Martin Luther's barber asked him how to pray. And so he wrote his barber prayer instructions. And here's the first, this is the first piece of advice he gives him. Uh, the barber's name was Peter. Dear Peter, I want to tell you as well as I can how, I'm, how I myself view and practice prayer. May our Lord God grant that you and many others shall profit by it. First, when I feel that I have become cold and indifferent to prayer through hostile thoughts and occupations, since the devil and the flesh always oppose and hinder prayer, I take my psalms into my room, or if it's the right day and hour, I go to church with the congregation and begin to say by myself, as the children would repeat, the Ten Commandments, the Creed, 
And if there's a little time left, several sayings of Christ or Paul or the Psalms. Now, Luther had been a monk. What is he saying? He's saying, sometimes when I am ready to pray, just because the devil works on me, because my own heart works on me, I don't know how to start, I don't know what to say, what do I do? Sometimes I'll grab my little psalm book, and either in my house or at my church, I'll go there and I'll just say the words to start. That is very good advice. That's... If you find that, you know what, I want to pray, but when I get started, I just feel like I'm kind of, I'm like taking on this affected way of talk. It's like I'm impersonating a minister I heard one time, and it's not me, and it feels inauthentic, and then I just sort of peter out. We, you're in good company. Maybe what you need to do is open a psalm and just say it to prime the pump. Get this. In the Gospel of Luke... Chapter 11, when Luke records Jesus teaching about the Lord's Prayer, in in Luke's account, Jesus says, when you pray, say, our Father who art... He says, just say these words to get started. Learn how to prime the pump. God's provided it. And this last point is related to that, to using other words to help you, and that is... Now, I feel torn about how to say this because God is the one who has to give us warmer hearts. But especially using the Scripture, speak yourself toward closeness to God. And I don't mean that in a positive thinking, you know, speak your destiny kind of thing. What I mean is this. It's possible to make a God out of authenticity. And to sort of say, well, you know what? I'm not going to be a fake person. I'm going to be an authentic person. I'm not going to play games. So if I feel distant from God right now, I think it would be fake of me to engage in prayer, and I'm not going to do it till I feel it. And God understands that, and I'm not going to play games anymore. You have to be careful with that logic. That would be like saying, I don't think that we should give each other cards every time it's our birthday on the exact date. I think sometimes we just need to give cards just freely as an expression of love and concern. That would be a great idea on opposite day. There's, you know, rituals are good. Sometimes you do something whether you feel it or not, but the amazing thing about praying the Word of God is it can touch the heart to start feeling what you long to feel. An example. It may be that, that, that you say, okay, I'm going to try what he said. I'm going to get up at 6. I'm going to kneel. I'm going to open the Bible and use someone else's words, but you know what? I don't feel close to God. In fact, I feel sort of... I feel in turmoil. What if you said these words? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God... For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Is it magic? No. But sometimes saying that and knowing that other saints felt this moves you toward closeness with God. Let me say one last thing and we're done. Um, 
you probably saw the news that Roger Ebert, the movie critic for the Chicago Sun-Times, he passed away this week from a, a long battle with cancer. And uh, I came across something he said in a speech. It was a, a TED talk, if you know what those are, from a couple of years ago. And it was as I was thinking about prayer, and it just, it's, it's worth hearing. Because of his thyroid cancer, his thyroid was taken out, a big section of his jaw was taken out. You may have seen how different he looked in appearance the last few years of his life. And he lost the ability to, uh, to talk. He gave this TED Talk through a, um, a computer-generated voice, and he said this, For most of my life, I never gave a second thought to my ability to speak. It was like breathing. In those days, I was living in a fool's paradise. And I'll just end with this. The, the part of what we have the privilege to see this morning is we're in that paradise. We are in that paradise this morning where not only in this service, but when we go home, when we wake up tomorrow, maybe in the dead of night, we can say things, not just in our brain, but we can say things to the living God. And because of the work of Christ... They're lovely. They go up to him like incense. And he hears us. And he responds. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we can't change each other. We can't change ourselves. So please take your word and... and drive it down deep into our heart of hearts and stir up prayer within us. Give us prayer. Give us adoration. Give us confession of sin. Give us the ability to ask not only for things for ourselves, but give us the ability to go to bat for others on our knees, on our face, in our car, as we walk along, make us a praying people. We thank you, O Lord, that even as we do so, we've got this great mediator who makes everything wrong with our prayers so lovely to you. And we pray in his name, the Lord Jesus. Amen.